yeas are 314, the nays are 117. The bill is passed. You could watch the House floor yesterday and say, wow, this is a bill that was brokered by negotiations on both sides. It's getting bipartisan support. It's going to pass the Senate. This is a, you know, a, good, a good day for American democracy. Rachel Siegel is an economics reporter for The Post. And for the last couple of weeks, she's been on the Hill. And that's because of the debt ceiling negotiations that nearly brought the global economy to its knees. So yes, Rachel says, this could be seen as a good day for democracy. But also... There was negotiating over the debt ceiling in the first place, which a lot of people argued should never have been the case. And this is something that is just a part of governing. But in divided government, we of course cannot allow the perfect to be the enemy of the good. This deal fails, fails completely. And that's why these members and others will be absolutely opposed to the deal, and we will do everything in our power to stop it. There were a lot of really sour feelings about why we were even there in the first place and what it signals about where things are in Washington. Neither side got what they wanted, but leadership of both parties are still claiming victory. It's amazing and really a bit of a head-scratcher. For months, and especially the last couple of weeks, The two sides, the House GOP and the White House, were on such opposite ends of these negotiations. And we really only saw some members on the far right side of the GOP and some members on the progressive side of the Democratic Party saying that they couldn't support this bill. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Arjun Singh. I'm your guest host today. It's Thursday, June 1st. Today, we unpack what exactly ended up in this deal. And we talk about how negotiating on the debt ceiling at all could hurt our global reputation. Now, the text is 99 pages long. I'm sure there's a lot of things in there. But Rachel, what are some of the key points out of there that stood out to you? What exactly is in this bill? So that final 99-page bill that finally got released over the weekend includes a couple of main bullet points. First, it suspends the debt limit until 2025. That helps us get out of this immediate deadline that we were staring down on June 5th. It also does something for Democrats, which basically puts this off until after the 2024 election. So that's one key thing that both resolves the current problem and kicks things a little further down the road. Then there are other things that were more priorities for Republicans. For example, the bill cuts some IRS funding. The Biden administration ultimately agreed to pare back about $20 billion of the $80 billion that was supposed to go to an expansion of the IRS. There were some progressive Democrats that were very upset about this, but it was a real key point that Republicans had been pushing for. Another thing that Republicans had been pushing for were new work requirements for certain federal food stamp programs and federal welfare benefits. That means that there are some new work requirements for SNAP. Uh, We're still trying to figure out the exact details, but basically the deal raises the age at which adults will be required to work in order to receive food stamps from 50 to 54. 
You know, it sounds like there actually were quite a bit of cuts that are coming out of this bill. And I know that Speaker Kevin McCarthy was very insistent that that was what they were going in to get. Yet, I also saw a fair amount of Republicans, particularly those further on the right in the very conservative House Freedom Caucus, expressing dismay with the bill. Some even saying we're not even going to support this bill. What did Kevin McCarthy get out of this deal? Why are those Republicans unhappy with the cuts that were in there? For days, members of the House Freedom Caucus, which is one of the farther right groups within the Republican Party, have been really, really angry with the final agreement that Kevin McCarthy brokered with Biden over the weekend. Their message, basically, is that the final agreement really went very far back on the initial proposal that Republicans passed earlier this spring. What they had been pushing for were really aggressive spending cuts to what they say put the country on a totally new spending and debt trajectory. And they say that that's not what they got. They say that McCarthy really backtracked in order to make certain concessions and finally come to an agreement with the White House. And they opposed the bill before it was even final. They came out really strong, encouraging other Republicans to defect. I want to be very clear. Not one Republican should vote for this deal. Not one. They've cast doubt on Kevin McCarthy's leadership in the first place. Ultimately, that level of criticism really stayed contained to a small enough number of lawmakers that it didn't threaten the bill. But it really did underscore the tension that is put against Kevin McCarthy and his pretty precarious hold over a party that has so many different factions right now. And for his part, what has Speaker McCarthy said about the deal? McCarthy is really proud. Tonight, we're going to do something we haven't done before. Tonight, we're going to give America hope. Yesterday, as he was walking back and forth to open up the House floor before the full House voted on the bill, he looked really proud of himself. He had this real beaming smile. And that was a different facial expression than we'd seen on him for much of the last couple of weeks when he was really in the thick of these negotiations. He says that it was a fair bill, that it ultimately did succeed in securing certain spending cuts and and ultimately getting to a place that averted this kind of economic doom. But he's really proud of the negotiations and completely disagrees with the way the House Freedom Caucus characterizes the agreement. Well, I'd love to look a little bit at some of the issues members on the other side of the aisle had with this deal. And in particular, those were the new work requirements that were added to some federal programs like you had mentioned earlier. Now, the entire negotiations, this had seemed to be a really sticking issue that particularly progressive members of the Democratic Party did not want to add work requirements to programs like SNAP, also known as food stamps. Rachel, before we get into how they feel about the final bill, could you unpack that a little bit for me? Why is the issue of work requirements as it relates to programs like food stamps such a sticking issue, particularly for liberal members of the Democratic Party? What I was hearing from some of the more liberal members of the Democratic Party was basically that food stamps or any sort of negotiation around work requirements just had no place in a debt ceiling argument. Work requirements were a real source of contention throughout these negotiations, and the end result was a little bit quirky. So the agreement does impose new work requirements for SNAP benefits, which used to be called food stamps. 
basically by raising the age at which people would still have to work or be in a training program in order to qualify. Veterans, people who were unhoused, and young adults who left foster care would be exempt from certain SNAP work requirements. But then there was a little quirk, too. The Congressional Budget Office, which does a lot of estimates for what this bill would actually look like, actually said that an additional 78,000 people per month would actually qualify for SNAP because of this expanded eligibility, which would cost more but still have more people qualifying for the program. President Biden was sort of messaging that it seems like things could have been far worse and that this was a better shake out of that deal. Is that a fair characterization of how the president is talking about this bill? What has he said about things like these new work requirements or the deal in general? President Biden appears very proud of the deal as well. We've heard much less from the White House than we have from the House GOP. There's actually been quite a bit of frustration from Democrats that the messaging from the White House has not been stronger on this deal. I can speak to the crowd of reporters that have been following the GOP negotiators up and down the halls of the Hill for weeks, whereas there really just has not been that much of an opportunity to hear from President Biden. But he stayed optimistic through this whole process. He was certain that he would be able to broker a deal with Kevin McCarthy. And he says that this deal not only averts the significant spending cuts that Republicans were seeking, but also includes a lot of the priorities that Democrats had been pushing for and, of course, avoids bumping up against the debt ceiling. Democrats had been saying that this deal had a lot of red lines that they absolutely did not want to vote for. But at the last minute, a lot of Democrats came out and supported it. What exactly was the calculus behind there? Why was it worth it to end up supporting this deal? A lot of Democrats did come forward to support the deal. In the end, actually, more Democrats voted in the House to support the bill than Republicans did. And I think that it boiled down to a couple of things. First, June 5th is very close. There really is not enough time to revise this bill or to have a lot of open negotiation to figure out what should change, what should be tweaked here. June 5th is just a couple of days away. And I think that there was a very serious recognition of what would happen if this bill did not go through, if the U.S. became dangerously close to defaulting on its debt. There was a lot of messaging around this bill that essentially said not everyone is going to get what they want, but the end result really was palatable enough to enough moderates and and really enough people within both parties to get them to support the bill without all that much hesitation when it came down to it. You know, you spent a lot of time on the Hill last week. You saw Speaker McCarthy going in and out of these negotiations. I'm really wondering... After everything that we saw and all of the buildup to what could have been a catastrophic economic event, did it seem like there was any reconsidering of whether the debt ceiling should be something that can be held up like this? I know there had been calls for eliminations of the debt ceiling, the president to bypass Congress, but did it seem like on the Hill there was any kind of momentum to do away with the debt ceiling at all after this? I think that that's one of the questions that lawmakers could be considering a little bit more thoughtfully once this is finally over. I think that there was so much stress and focus and anxiety and contention around figuring out what to do about this immediate deadline. There was obviously a lot of frustration that boiled over that had some lawmakers saying, 
what can we do to make sure we're not in this situation again? But really the prevailing focus and energy was on how to hammer out a deal. And there were some days where it looked like that wouldn't be possible. There were some days where one of the GOP negotiators came out of a meeting and said, talks are on pause. And and yesterday he told us that things had really blown up a couple of times over the course of these negotiations. They would take a couple steps back and then kind of inch forward. Now we're finally on the other side of it, but so much of the focus over the last couple of weeks was just figuring out what to do before early June. After the break, we'll get into how this deal kicks the debt ceiling down the road and what this close call means for our economy going forward. We'll be right back. So the good news is that it does seem like the worst catastrophe that could have come out of a default is not going to happen. But in the run-up to all of this, the tension that surrounded it, Rachel, do you have a sense of how others were watching this, whether that be other nations, perhaps even the Federal Reserve? But did the tension and debate and the near miss that we almost had here have any ramifications in how people are going to interact with United States dollars or the U.S. economy going forward? It came really close. There were a lot of other world leaders who look at the United States and look at this particular process and the politics around it and just cannot fathom the risk that comes along with this. The United States is one of the foundations of the global economy. So many nations rely on dollars and the strength of the U.S. economy to protect and shield and service their debt. And they were looking at you know, the political drama unfolding on Capitol Hill and at the White House and waiting for a tidal wave to hit their own shores if the United States couldn't get its act together. It doesn't look like there were tangible consequences to the global economy that would have come if there was an actual default. But I do think that there was a level of just sort of growing uh, alarm or skepticism about why the United States handles its process this way in the first place. And then at the Federal Reserve, this was just one more piece of that big word uncertainty that we talk about often on this show. The Federal Reserve has enough on its plate in terms of shielding the economy. It's still trying to get inflation down. It's still trying to head off a recession. It's now June 1st, and I don't think it would have been all that much of a comfort to them to know that this debt ceiling impasse wouldn't have come together with just a couple of days before the default deadline. Did any of this alarm and uncertainty seem to weigh on Speaker McCarthy in the last week when you were on Capitol Hill? Did he speak at all as to the impact even just these negotiations were having on America's public image? McCarthy would talk about it, and I think that that was a message forwarded by both parties in their own ways. Both parties would use this imminent deadline to try and pressure the other side to make concessions and negotiate. Interestingly, there were a couple of far-right Republicans who cast doubt on this early June deadline, but others really used it to their advantage to say, we are ticking up against the clock here. Republicans also criticized the White House for waiting a long time to come to the negotiating table in the first place and were really able to use it to their advantage and keep a lot of negotiations on their terms, saying, we've had a proposal forward for months, you haven't wanted to come to the negotiating table, and now we've really only got a handful of days to figure this out. 
Mm. You know, a little while ago, we had our colleague Tony Rahm on the show, and he introduced a little piece of history that I found interesting, which was that the last time there was a big debt ceiling showdown in 2011, the country's credit rating was downgraded. Should we expect anything like that to happen again? That was one of the big fears on the list of doomsday scenarios that would have come if we defaulted or even came close to defaulting. And so far, it seems like that is another thing that has thankfully been averted. This is on a path to pass the Senate by a vote sometime in the next couple of days. It's already cleared more than enough support in the House. President Biden will get it signed as quickly as possible. And hopefully those things will help wipe away the slate of really, really disastrous scenarios like a credit downgrade and obviously all the consequences that would have come for the American people too. Now, in the debt ceiling agreement, as you had said, the debt ceiling is raised for about two years until 2025. But Rachel, does that just kind of kick the can down the road? I mean, this was such an alarming event for so many people. Does it seem like there's anything that could prevent it from happening again? Or are we potentially going to be back in this position in January 2025? I think that's one of the questions that we'll have to answer in the meantime. I certainly hope we're not back on this show in January 2025 talking about a near default on the country's debt. But it could go two ways. You could have lawmakers really thoughtfully sit back and say, okay, this was a really bad path to go down for too long. What can we do to make sure that this doesn't happen again? Or as sometimes happens in Washington, the next crisis hit and the next issue sucks up all of the oxygen and takes all of the attention and makes it so that suddenly in January 2025, we're right back where we started. Might be too early to answer that, but whether this becomes a really hard memory for people and get them to change is something that we'll have to watch over the next 18 months. Well, Rachel, I look forward to the next time you are back on the show, whether it's to talk about the debt ceiling or the Federal Reserve again. Thank you so much for all of this today. It was great talking to you. Thank you for having me. Rachel Siegel is an economics reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Gabe O'Connor. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. If you want to show your support for the show, please subscribe to The Washington Post. It's a great way to support the work we do. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Arjun Singh. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.